Hi, everyone. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land Visual Network, February 14th, 2023, and Schwartz, 23rd, 5783. Beautiful day here in the Judean Hills. My head is full of so many thoughts. Just going to share some of them with you. Um, obviously, what's you know really on my head is the uh, the murders of of these two small boys, the Paley boys, last Friday, <clears throat> and um, and the young groom, the twenty year old who had just gotten married, and what's been happening since then, the terror that just never seems to end of their children trying to kill people. It's time, but this the other day with somebody that I, I don't believe that children are born really good or really bad. Kind of like a tabula rasa. Yeah, we're all hardwired in one way or another, or personality traits and things like that. But in general, it's the education that they get. And we see the education that our enemy is getting. By the way, I'm not going to call them cousins anymore. Um, it's not so clear that the Arabs of today are descendants from Ishmael um, or from Abraham. And uh, I really don't feel like having more family that... I don't particularly like, <laughs> so I think we're all in that situation. Um, but uh, it's more than not particularly like. It's uh, There's something seriously wrong, seriously wrong in their society. Um, if they're honest with you, they'll be the ones to tell you that first in terms of the violence, in terms of, you know, just like the killing and, and the values, if you can call them values, of what's going on there. And I look at these pictures of these two little boys. Their mother's pregnant. Their father, at least the last I heard, is himself not in good shape and uh, doesn't know. And the, uh, I'm not going to say that the family is destroyed because I don't know this particular family, but knowing families like them, they they have tremendous faith and tremendous strength in ways that are really incomprehensible. So I don't believe that family will be destroyed, changed forever, of course, broken hearts forever, of course, but not destroyed. Our enemies are not, are not going to destroy us uh, as hard as they try, and they're trying very hard, and they will continue to. Um, what's so distressing, of course, is there are the other people in the world, the people who should know better, like people who run really important countries who seem to put this moral equivalence on and just stop the violence. And of course, when Israel does finally something really brilliant, which is legalize nine Jewish communities that should have been legalized a long time ago because every Jew living anywhere in the land should never feel that he's living in any kind of uh, illegal way. Um, so at least that's some kind of answer. Like you're trying to drive us out of our land. No, we are going to make sure that it's even more permanent. And if you don't like it, then stop killing us. But of course, there's so many behavioral psychology, just really, you know, actions that could have been taken over the years that would deter violence and deter terror, not because they've changed their minds, but because it's not worth it for them to do that. Um, and in the main, we haven't done those, or we've been pressured to not do those. It doesn't even matter anymore. And um, it's very, 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 very distressing. And, um, and I just, I can't, I can't get past this. And, and the soldier that was killed yesterday, the, um, 
the border policeman that was killed yesterday and on and on and on and on a 13 year old stabbing somebody in the back like what is that that's that should not even be considered normal that my friends who live outside of gaza should always have to worry that at any second there could be a rocket and then there's there isn't even a response so this term status quo has started to bother me because status quo is never the status quo of the original whatever agreement or non-agreement that there was it's always at some place where someone decides that that's going to be the default mode so status quo for gaza is that we have a terror bloodthirsty enemy on the other side of that line that we gave a little country to uh, at the cost of doing terrible things to our own citizenship. And then they can just shoot willy-nilly at us. And that's now the status quo is that we cannot respond. And the status quo on the Temple Mount is that Jews cannot pray on our holiest site, but little Arab kids can play soccer, okay, and do whatever it is that they want. And the status quo becomes something that is untenable that is untenable. So um, I think we need to like reframe that as much as possible and start making some sense of things. I, uh, I'm preparing to talk to a group of boys. I'm going out in a couple of hours to talk to a group of boys who want to hear this, uh, the opinion of somebody who lives in Yudav Shamron. It's nice. It's been happening more often than it was. Maybe it's picked up after Corona where I've spoken to some of these groups. I don't re- Sometimes I get feedback afterwards that they want to continue the dialogue. They want me to Zoom into their college campus afterwards. And that's really nice. I don't know how many minds I'm changing. I know that I'm going up against years and years and years of a brainwash where they think that Israel is evil, where they think that Judaism is evil. And, uh, and it's so it's so totally the reverse of what's actually happening that it's it's hard to it's just very hard. But I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. It was um, as you all know, of course, I was uh, I was in Egypt for 10 days, which was really a life-changing trip. I am really apologize about the quality of the audio last week. Um, it was the best we could do, but it wasn't nearly good enough. Um, but uh, so many thoughts about that. First of all, Egypt itself is now an Arab country. Okay, there aren't the Egyptians. That civilization is long gone. And you could see it reflected, unfortunately, in... Um, it's such a poor country, and this is a country that was once the breadbasket of the world. Just look at the ancient writings, not just the Torah. And, um, and now they can't feed their own people. Um, the, the war in the Ukraine has made, you know, they, they used to import wheat from there. And now, of course, that supply line is iffy. So they're, they seem to be trying to bounce back. They're planting corn and planting wheat in different parts of the area. Um, there are some areas that are so green, you almost can't take it in. Um, but, and there's, and then most of it is just barren desert. You can drive for hours and hours and hours and just see desert and just feel the relentless beating of the sun. It's no surprise to hear that the largest solar panel field in the world is now going to be put there. Um, 105 million people, they add a million people a year, people living in the cemetery in Cairo, literally the city of the dead. Every single time we got off a bus, um, even at five in the morning when I went on a hot air balloon ride, which was incredible, I have to say, never done that before. I have a bucket list of things. I've jumped out of a plane and I've gone whitewater rafting and I've ziplined over the rainforest and, um, and gone scuba diving and done a couple of things that are really fun and amazing. But this I'd never done. And so we did a hot air balloon over, um, over Luxor. And, uh, it was just, it was just beautiful. But, um, 
But at five in the morning, we get off the bus and there are kids there like trying to sell us stuff and asking for food. It's like, why aren't you in bed with your mother preparing your lunch for school so you can go out and get an education? Like this is child abuse. Nobody's ever going to say that. And nobody's ever going to, you know, criticize um, that when you can just pound on Israel all the time. Um, The trip to Egypt was mind-blowing in so many ways. First of all, the juxtaposition of modern Egypt, if you can call it modern Egypt, and, um, and the ancient civilization. For the first time, on a completely different level, I understood why the fact that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim is repeated so often in our prayers. Obviously, Passover, Seder, a whole evening is devoted to that story. There's when you go there and you see the immensity of the temples and the buildings that they left behind. And it's only a small portion of what, what was once there. A lot of it's been destroyed over the years or covered up by floodings of the Nile and this and that. Then you realize that if there is a higher power that wants to give his bona fides in like the biggest way possible, this is it. Taking a group of people out of ancient Egypt is the way to do it because you just look around and you see how strong they were, how incredibly powerful they were. You can feel it from what they left behind that it would have been impossible to think of getting out of there. That would have been it. It would have been the end. And so that fact that that Hashem takes us out of there is a pretty incredible way of saying, yeah, I'm the ultimate power because Nothing else could have done that. And the theme of the trip, which came across, I think, very, very well, you know, in that sense, is the, the paradigm shift when it comes to God. I mean, for me, the, the story is anyhow in the differences. When you read two things, you read two similar things, the story is in what's different in between them. And so much of what we saw, which for me just bolstered the idea that we were in Egypt, because so many of the references are Egyptian, um, is of right there. It's, it's all the Pharaoh with the God and the relationship. But the shift here is that the Torah, and this is in, in Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman's words, the Torah takes away the power and status from the elites and empowers the common people. Okay, it's really like that simple. That that's why everything is about the nation, because the nation is the common people, and that's why I think Judaism has so much to offer, more than other religions who tend to focus on one person, who got the word, got the call, got the vision, and the, and the religion is very much focused on that one individual, be it Jesus, be it Buddha, be it be it uh, I don't know whatever, all the way through Muhammad. And even with the greatness of some of the people in our past, it's not, it's not about that person. It's about, not about lauding and worshiping that person. It's about God, the bottom line. And I see Shabbat in there as proof that there's a God because no human being would ever give people every seventh day off um, because you want them working for you and providing things to you. And so it doesn't make any sense. Only a God who really cares about people and who we are, and we're not just our day jobs, but we're beyond that, would give us a Shabbat. So for me, Shabbat is proof that there's a God. But in Egypt, there were so many things. And I was brought to tears on more than one occasion for different reasons. 
standing at the temple in Karnak and looking at the wall and seeing what is written in the Tanakh about the Pharaoh, Shishak's um, foray through Canaan, if you will, and the cities that are mentioned in the Tanakh that he destroyed are mentioned on the walls there in hieroglyphics, which are excellent guide, by the way, uh, a local Egyptian Christian knows how to read. And so he was showing us that. And to just see, it's not like I need the proofs, but it's really not a bad idea to get them. And to see that reflected there, to see the pictures um, of slaves making bricks, slaves that look Semitic because the Egyptians are clean cut and, and the slaves, the Semitic slaves are not. See them making bricks, see someone standing over them, beating them, just as it's written about in the Torah. And you realize the depth of the depression and the helplessness. You can get a little bit of a glimpse of it when you talk to the few still remaining Holocaust survivors who were also slaves and were also tortured and beaten, obviously, and worse. Um, If you want to get an idea of what that does to a person and now multiply it by many generations um, with no hope of getting out or as it turns out there was some and you and you get this you get this bigger picture and it's so hard to fly out into over 3,000 years ago but I, I got a little bit of a taste of that and um, it made me appreciate my relationship with Hashem all that much more the unconditional tremendous love that I feel on a personal level and that I also feel for my people um, without you know there are conditions like to not betray him and all that. Um, but uh, it's, um, it was really immense. And um, we talk here in Israel, especially tour guides, about how you know, old everything is here. And then you go there and you see the pyramids are even a thousand years older than anything that we can. Well, there's a couple of things here in Israel, I suppose, gates to a couple of the cities that are around from that same time period. But really to appreciate the genius that went into building these things. Um, and we still don't know to a great degree how they were able to do that. And to really explore that world, especially the world of Ramses II, who's the incredibly powerful pharaoh who, who rules for 80 years and is, according to many, not most, I mean, to most, not many, well, I don't know exactly how the numbers break down, um, the pharaoh of the Exodus we're talking about in the 13th century, and so many temples that are built in his honor, not for the people, for him to to talk about his relationship um, with God, the gods. Uh, there's a few there, of course. Um, for me, and I mentioned it last week, I believe, really the most moving moment for the, in the trip with all the, the huge temples and all the edifices, edifices, edify, whatever, large buildings, um, was standing in Yeb on Elephantine Island and looking down in the area where there was some kind of Judean temple where they weren't, monotheists, their letters talk about, there's a couple of gods that they're worshiping, including Elohim. And, but the, uh, the, the backdrop is a Jewish backdrop of keeping Passover. I had to, um, had to renew my gun license a couple of days ago. It's not something I want to have lapsed given what's going on around here. And I, so I went in, you have to do a little course, a refresher course. And the instructor, the name of the instructor was, is Hanania really great guy. And once again, I'm always reminded when I do these things, how much effort Israelis put into saving lives of everybody, 
of everyone. Okay, you go in there and they will tell you, our goal here is not to teach you how to kill terrorists. Our goal here is to teach you how not to have anybody hurt in any situation. Very different than people think. Anyhow, so his name is Hanania. And Hanania is the name of the commander of the of the Judean military garrison on Elephantine Island 2,500 years ago. This is like, yeah, you know, the theophoric name, the name that includes the name of how we call God. And uh, it's like, yeah, it's just, it was kind of, kind of ironic. But that for me, especially because I studied that last year with Dr. Esti Eschel, who did some of the translating of the papyri that were found there uh, in the Geniza that was found there of the letters from long ago, the letters to Jerusalem, the letters to the Samaritan priests, because they don't really know what's going on in the land of Israel at that time. Who, who's got the upper hand? The very beginnings, we think, of the Second Temple period. And it's not clear. Have the Jews come back? Have they reestablished? Uh, maybe the Sa- Samaritans are now really strong um, with their version of history and of, uh, you know, Torah. I'm not going to call it Judaism because it's a different take on Torah. It's based in Torah, but it's it's not what we what we would call Judaism now. So um, that for me was just so moving. And there were so many other times, some of them modern, going into the beautiful synagogue in Cairo that was abandoned in 1956 when the Jews were forced to leave as a result of the Sinai campaign and seeing the peeling walls and everything just totally falling apart, having an interesting discussion over whether that's something that should be refurbished. I think not. I think it should be left derelict to show this is what happens to Jews in the diaspora who can't defend themselves. Uh, sorry if that hits a nerve with some of you out there who might be listening, uh, who have beautiful synagogues now and the feeling of a lot of security. History does tend to repeat itself. But what was so moving is meeting the caretaker in the synagogue, uh, Ramadan, a, a Muslim. He and his sister are living in the little building adjacent to the synagogue that had the mikvah and had the ritual bath that the Jews used to use, that one of their doorways is the parochet. It's the, it's the um, curtain that used to be over the Torah. There's still Torahs in that synagogue. And he and his sister take care of the synagogue. They maintain it as best as they can. They um, were pretty much adopted by the Jews there. <clears throat> they were educated and taken care of. Didn't make clear what had happened to his own family in the 1940s. You could still see the grief on his face about the Jews leaving. And he was, he, he was, he said a prayer to us in Hebrew. Of course, tears were rolling down my face because it's not simple. All right. Even though I opened up this show with a lot of very hard feelings against Muslim society and Arab society, maybe more correctly, and the education that they give their children and the violence, it's not one-sided at all. And within them are many, 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 many people who you could see want to live together, are still grieving that that was taken away. Maybe they're the silent majority. I don't know. I don't know the numbers. Never will. But sitting with Ramadan and his sister, you could see how sad he was that the Jews had left, how much, how much love he had for the Jewish people, for the care that they had given him. And we're talking now 70, 75 years ago. They haven't forgotten. And they saw the goodness in the Jewish community. And they understood the, the horror of the Jews being forced to leave these places. And so there are, there are many good people around. Today's not one of the days that I'm going to say that there are more good people than 
bad people. I wish I could say that. There are some days where I do say that. Most of humanity is good. Um, probably my my basic belief is that most of humanity doesn't give a damn, is just involved with their own things and is not really good or bad. They're just kind of going through life, trying to get the new stuff and trying to, just, or if you're living in, let's say, India, just trying to survive. You're, the new, The newest iPhone is kind of irrelevant when you don't have food on the table. And we saw pieces of that in Egypt, that kind of poverty. Definitely when we were down in Aswan, um, we were in, deep in Africa and uh, and definitely saw, you know, some of the, what never makes the news, of course, um, saw that. So most people probably don't have the time to think about being good or bad. They're just trying to get through. Um, but some of the people who should be better are not. And, um, and that's, that's really super depressing. And then you get these little glimpses of, wow, this is what it really is. And, and maybe humanity is, is at its core good. But most of humanity, getting back to slavery, you could probably say is helpless, is helpless to really be able to give their opinions, to really be able to make a change. Those of you who are listening, if you're living in free society as, as I am, with all the chaos that's happening here in Israel and all the screaming and yelling about how we're turning fascist and democracy is out the window, which is a load of you-know-what, um, it's just a very disgruntled and unhappy group of people who are watching their power that they shouldn't have had all these years slipping through their fingers, having a massive tantrum on a scale that's actually quite dangerous. But I don't even want to go there and get into that because members of Knesset standing on the tables and shouting and blocking roads to the airport is just so beneath the dignity of the of the role that they were elected to play that I don't really want to relate to them so much like that. But those of you who are lis- listening from other free societies understand, we've talked about this before, how precious that is, how precious it is that I can go, I don't take it for granted that I can make this podcast and put it out there. And if people get mad, they get mad. And if they decide not to listen to me anymore, that's totally fine. It's a free world. Uh, you know, don't listen. It's, it's great. You won't be the first pe- people to not listen to me. But um, to be able to share our opinions and our worries and our thoughts and our concerns and sometimes our anger um, is super important because most people in the world cannot do this, cannot do this simple act. So I appreciate it greatly. And I appreciate those of you who are listening from, I assume, freedom of will that nobody's forcing you to do this. I don't know um, that that we can have this. It's not a conversation because it's kind of a monologue. It's not kind of a monologue. It is a monologue, although you're certainly welcome to write to me. And I love getting feedback from those of you who are listening, this is something that's that's super, super important. And to get back to that, those times of slavery where people just simply did not have that. They couldn't. And, you know, delving in the Tanakh and after Pharaoh won't let us go, then, you know, the people go and get met, or at least the the kapos of the time, if you will, even though that's a very harsh term, but essentially that's what they were. The Jews, Jewish overseers of the Jewish slaves, you know, go and yell it at Moshe and Aaron, and now you've made things more difficult for us, and we don't even have straw to make our bricks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's always going to be those internal um, upset because you can't get it's you're helpless to get upset at the people who are really the root cause of the problem. So you get upset at the people closest to you. And we all know this from the boss that you can't get upset at because you don't want to get fired. So you come home and yell at your wife and kids or your husband or whatever it is. And it's not, it's not anything new that I'm saying here, but it's that same, it's that same idea, but to really get in there and see the serious helplessness of the slaves 
And once again, the appreciate the appreciation to Hashem that gets us out of there. And maybe that's where we need to go with a lot of these things. And I'm not one of those people who says you just need to sit home and pray all day and hope that everything will be fine. I'm clearly not that kind of person. I've taken whatever skills that I believe Hashem has given me to try and at least change my surroundings a little bit, try and change the world around me if I see that there's injustice or lies or whatever it is um, to get out there and, and try and fix it, try and educate people. Um, that's another segue. And then, uh, then I am going to have to go and end this show for this week. Um, which is somebody said to me, because I'm taking a lot of the things that I've learned both in Egypt, both in, in academia and in Torah lessons or wherever, 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 wherever it is, um, that I've learned things and I'm turning them into lectures and I'm turning them into PowerPoints and it's things that I want to go out and teach people next week. I'm going to Baltimore and I will be there for a long weekend um, doing just that and meeting with people who were here on a mission with me in Judea and Samaria and want to move that forward and educate others. So if I'm able to do that, that's what I want to do. And somebody said to me, why are you bothering? Like, why are you doing that? Why is it so important for you to to talk about the history and talk about the process? And And I realized, and in formulating my answer, I realized something that is, it's not a mantra of my life, but it's definitely... It's definitely part of what's very important to me. And I'm being a little reflective today also because it's my last day of being 61 years old. Tomorrow, at least, is my English birthday. Next Monday is my Hebrew birthday. And so, you know, already moving into, I'm not going to say old age, but definitely a time period in my life where I, I know that I don't have forever and whatever I want to accomplish, I need to do now. And thank God I'm healthy and I'm not demented yet, um, which is the would be the worst of all of everything um, to get out there. So somebody said, like, why why are you bothering? So you know this stuff, so it's great. But I don't think that I know this stuff for me. I know it already. Okay, I want to move it forward because I believe that there are changes that are necessary now um, in in Jewish life, in Jewish public life, in some of the in some of the values and the framework that I want to see happening here in this country that is a miracle. Every single second of its existence is a miracle, but there are a lot of challenges and a lot of issues. Some of them, as we've seen in the last few weeks, not the external enemy, but the the internal one who sees a different direction for this country um, than I do. And so to take, to take what I know and to show that we have changed over the years, that this has been, we haven't been like in one line the whole time, doing the exact same thing the whole time. Um, this is also a book that I'm reading now, uh, who, and I'll interview him when I finish the book, a book that has kind of set people on their ear by Jonathan Adler, The Origins of Judaism, When Did All the Things That We Start Doing Happen? Um, were we always sifting our flour and having two sets of dishes? And the, an- the short answer is no. And the longer answer is, so what changed and how do we have that process? And I see the things around me changing. We're going to have to change the way we bury our dead here in Israel. We're running out of land, so we can't have the traditional graves. I know I'm mixing a whole lot of things up in here, and I apologize, but you're just getting a little look into my brain this morning, um, of that we are a people constantly in transition, constantly rejuvenating, or we should be. And so only by understanding that that is not a new thought or radical thought, that we've always been reform, reforming, whatever it is, rejuvenating, um, that we can have the 
the bravery and the guts and the um, faith in order to be able to continue doing it and not lock it down. And so I see that that's hugely important to me um, for the world that I want to leave my children, I want to leave my grandchildren. There's so many things that I can't control. I can't keep them safe. Any one of us who thinks that we can keep our children and grandchildren safe, that's sweet, but it's a little naive. We can do what we can. We can buckle them up. We can cut up their grapes into little tiny pieces so they don't choke. There's some really bad people out there. And also things that are not due to really bad people, diseases and all that kind of stuff that's out there. And, um, and so, but in my own little way, that's what I want to try and do. Um, if I can, by maybe changing people's hearts and minds to understanding uh, what I see as... I don't know if I'm going to call it the truth because that sounds like so bombastic. I don't think any of us human beings really know what the truth is in our very limited capacity to understand the universe, to understand this whole thing that's happening. But the older I get, the more confused I get in many ways because I see that things are way beyond my understanding. And, uh, and that's okay. But I'm going to try and get it into some kind of place that I can at least control and, and try and make the world a better place and people more, you know, out of their comfort zones in order to understand some of what's happened and maybe then set the ground for what is yet to be and what will come after me and, uh, and, and how I can, how I can be a part of that. So Egypt was a part of my journey. It's part of my people's journey. And now it became a part of my personal journey into understanding. And the bottom line is tremendous gratitude to the creator for not just taking us out of Egypt, but for staying with us the whole time and still believing in us and maybe still believing in humanity. And I got to give him a lot of credit for that. I really do. Um, So I'll talk more about it. It's going to be obviously integrated into a lot of the different things that I do. And I'm still percolating the information through and um, trying to sort it out in the different places and why things happen in different places. And uh, it was really a fabulous experience. And I'm very grateful that I was able to go, that I was able to afford to go, that I had a wonderful group of people with me. I was with my husband, but I was also with other people. And you don't know, you know, you can fall into a group when you're traveling when people aren't so nice, the people were amazing. They were lovely. They were warm. They took pictures. It, it turned, and that, that was, you know, nothing that we could plan. And I have to do a shout out here to Cindy Klein and to uh, Shai Barilan Tours for really doing a great job in, uh, in the logistics, which I can only imagine how complicated they were. And in a foreign country with, you know, people around that maybe weren't always, um, as friendly as they seemed to be today, um, and kosher food and a beautiful Shabbat and all of those accoutrements that um, definitely make life as uh, an observant Jew much easier when you're going to a place where there isn't like, you know, just a kosher restaurant down the block. And that was, that was very appreciative. And of course, to, to Rabbi Berman for really a lot of his insights and, um, and getting some people went out of their comfort zones a little more than I did. I was already there a couple of years ago when I first read his book and other people, it was interesting watching them absorb the new information. Uh, and it wasn't easy. And there were a lot of fascinating conversations, uh, on the bus 
and uh, a lot of friendships were formed, and it was, that was kind of a side thing. And another side thing were the beautiful cotton that I brought home with me, uh, Egyptian cotton being, did you think I was actually not going to throw in something materialistic here? I mean, do me a favor. Um, but the Egyptian cotton is known to be the best in the world. You can, if you're smuggling seeds out, you'll be arrested. They do not take that lightly. But in the meantime, we got to bring like some, you know, tablecloths and scarves and some of the beautiful handwork that the Bedouin women do there and the women in the Sinai and these little workshops that they have um, uh, to put food on their table. But um, that was a, it was a lovely to be able to bring that and give that as gifts. And, you know, so that people, it's not connecting people to take a scarf that a woman made in Egypt and give it to my daughter or my daughter-in-law here in Israel, but in a way it is. And, uh, and it was, um, and the prices were great and the quality looks good. So that was kind of like a nice, a nice side thing. Um, to to the trip as well anyway gotta bounce have a busy day ahead of me interesting things definitely my life should stay interesting so thank you everybody thanks to ben and to tabitha and to all of you eve harrow rejuvenation on the land of israel network take care everybody and goodbye for now The question is, why are the Jews there in the first place? The Jewish people have been yearning to return to their ancient homeland for a long time. The Yishai Fleischer Show, the voice of a new generation of pro-Israel activists. And there's only two kinds of minorities in the Middle East, armed or unarmed. Inspiring minds to think differently. That jihadism doesn't just attack Jews. It attacks Christians, and it mostly attacks Muslims. Inspiration, spirituality, and politics. So first and foremost, this country is here to defend Jewish people and to live in its ancestral homeland. Listen to the Yishai Fleischer Show every week on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com.